Don't ever go full on chain if you don't have to. Like if you can build a system that actually creates the level of trust and transparency and scales, great. That's my view. Like money, you can't do that. You want that state to have the double spend prevention, but you, you should be focused on what can drive the best user experience. Every architectural decision we've started with is what is the best user experience for someone just showing up? If you are adding any amount of friction to users on any social product, they'll just go back to the, the Web2 one. So we're, we're not competing to see who can come up with the most clever architecture in crypto. We're competing with Web2. This episode is brought to you by Das London, Blockworks' number one institutional crypto conference where all the top institutions and people in crypto are going to be this March in London, what's becoming maybe the crypto hub of the world. I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more and also a discount code that will get you 10% off. Click the link, find out more, and I'll see you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we're joined by Dan Romero, who's the co-founder of Farcaster, which is the hottest thing in crypto right now. Dan, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, we are pumped to have you on. I don't think there could be better timing for this. Farcaster and Warpcast is hitting all-time numbers. Um, for people that don't know, Farcaster is a decentralized social network, but it's much, much bigger than that. Um, Dan, I want to get into all the details of what it is, how it works. But I think it'd be great to start off with kind of the context of how you began to think about Farcaster. Uh, because this isn't your first rodeo. I know you joined Coinbase back in 2014. I think there was about 20 people. You left when it was around 800. So you have grown a startup. You've shown that you can be successful. So why did you decide to build Farcaster? Sure. So maybe set some historical context. Uh, I grew up on my, my kind of earliest memories on the internet were during the early stages of Web 2.0. So kind of after the dot-com crash, uh, I was you know kind of in high school and started playing around with all of the kind of new user-generated content. It was UGC was the, the term. Um, so things, things like Flickr, um, and then obviously the social networks that started to pop up, like Facebook, like Twitter. And I, I lived through that whole era. I was in college. Um, I actually built an early Twitter uh, app. It was a polling app. So we'll talk about frames later. But like the, the kind of frame polls that you see today, I basically built a very crude version of that on the, the Twitter API back in the day. And then um, ended up moving to Silicon Valley and, and kind of showed up in 2013 and, and then started working at, at tech companies and then eventually moved over to uh, Coinbase and started working in crypto. But the reason I started with the kind of Web2 thing is that, that that's kind of where I grew up on the internet. And I've always been fascinated with uh, the distribution of information. And I'll, I'll give you two specific examples. One, I, I mentioned I worked on the Twitter API early. And I very much remember that era of kind of like there were multiple clients. Um, users were the ones inventing a lot of the primitives. So like app replies and hashtags, quote tweets, retweets, all of that wasn't originally native on Twitter. It was invented by users and developers. So that seemed like a really exciting thing to be a part of, um, especially when I was moving to Silicon Valley. That since has changed and we can talk about that. But the, the second thing is um, Paul Graham wrote an essay in 2009 and it's just labeled Twitter. And he talks about how Twitter is this weird company that ended up inside, or rather a protocol, an internet protocol, which is pretty rare, to end up inside a company. And I, I remember reading it and kind of not totally grokking it. But then I think once I started working in crypto, I started to really think about protocols. And um, there's another protocol that kind of still exists. This podcast is actually going to be distributed via uh, RSS. So when you get a podcast delivered to your uh, podcast reader, that's using this old school internet protocol, RSS, used to be used for blogs. And it kind of got beat by Twitter in the 2010s. And we could talk for a variety of reasons why that happened. But so while I was at Coinbase, I kind of always was in the back of my head thinking about like, okay, 
why why did Twitter beat RSS? And in a world where you know you kind of see the 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 execution that ends up happening uh, from Bitcoin, from a uh, Ethereum, from a Solana. Uh, with these permissionless public blockchains, how, how could you actually start to compete against a centralized social media company like Twitter if it was a protocol and 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 something more akin to RSS? So actually, when when Vern and I started working on this, and Vern, my co-founder, and I worked at Coinbase together, we um, we were throwing around ideas, and and we both got excited about this this idea of like, and the question was, could you make RSS competitive with Twitter? So the original name for the project was RSS Plus. Did a bunch of prototyping, kind of worked our way through the idea maze, and then in, and then roughly at the beginning of 2021, so about three years ago, we started working on what was the view one of Farcaster. And three years later, um, in the last two weeks, we've had a lot of growth. But for the most part, we've been we've been grinding away at the kind of underlying technology at the protocol level, but also uh, our app Warpcast, um, which is kind of if, if you want to use an analogy from crypto, it's it's kind of like Ethereum and MetaMask or uh, if you want to use email, email and Gmail, right? So it's like Farcaster and Warpcast. And so those are the two things we've been working on for the last three years. Got it. That's that's helpful. And it's this is actually kind of the premise of Chris Dixon's new book, Read, Write, Own, about how the web started with Web 1 and protocols, emails, the web itself, HTTP, and then maybe Web 2 came along and beat out uh, RSS. And then now crypto kind of is giving protocols renaissance, I'm curious why, um, because protocols could mean various different, uh, they could power various different applications. You picked social. Uh, what, what is it about social that interested you? Well, I, like I said, I, I think I Twitter was the thing that captured my imagination first on the internet, and especially when it had the open APIs. And I think over the last 10 years, um, what I found is, and this is a little bit pre-Elon, so you know, we started Farcaster before Elon showed up at Twitter. So there's a little bit of a, a change in terms of the plan. But I think going into it, our, our expectation was Twitter was just going to kind of continue to muddle along. It was going to be this big thing with the network effect, but it didn't really feel like it was a dynamic company. There wasn't a ton of innovation. And my view is that the idea that a group of people in San Francisco basically get to set the content policies for the entire world, right? Like Twitter is essentially a global phenomenon, but a group of people in San Francisco get to decide like, what is acceptable versus not. And you don't even have to be that political on that. It just doesn't feel like, look, I'm American. Like, I believe in the Constitution. Like, I, I think it's deeply un-American to have anyone be able to tell you what you can say or cannot say. And I think, um, so I think rooted in that is like a, a deep belief in the First Amendment and this idea that, no, like the internet works, HTTP works and SMTP work because they are permissionless, you know, public protocols that allow for the marketplace of ideas. And um, I think one thing that's kind of interesting is like free speech has turned into this like coded political thing. And I actually, I, I, I approach it from the, no, I actually think like everyone should have the right to go be able to go build something. The thing that you don't have an entitlement to is distribution. And I actually think what people get caught up with Web2 in free speech is because it's a vertically integrated stack, your identity, your storage of where the content is, the distribution of the content, the algorithm is all one company the free speech thing gets kind of like muddled. And, and the reality is like, no, if you actually allow the stack to have multiple competitors at the app layer, the, you know, the implementation layer, the algorithmic layer, then you don't have a monoculture in the same way that email and, and the web works, right? It's like you can have the New York Times and Fox News can both have a website. And like that, that is totally fine, right? Like it's not like one of those gets to control the web and then can kind of shut the other one out. And I don't think if you talk to anyone who's like into the kind of misinformation or, you know, the, the censorship, 
you know, pro argument of like, oh, well, we can't allow this to happen. I don't think anyone has complained about the web. Uh, they only complain about the the web two social platforms because the control of that and the control of the default algorithm is so powerful because they have a monopoly on that social graph that you do all these like mental contortions to kind of justify depending on who's in control, right? Because as soon as as soon as the, the regime changed to Twitter, there were a whole bunch of people who before were happy to say, oh, go build your own social network or go to a different social network. That completely changed overnight and say, this person's ruining it. Like, oh, we shouldn't have, um, you know, a single person in control of a, a social network as important as Twitter. And so it's a validation of actually the, the fundamental premise for Farcaster is a protocol that no one individual company or country controls. That is the, the, the kind of long-term equilibrium state that for the global public square. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that's, that's a great premise and kind of foundation for understanding why it exists and the things that it aims to tackle. Now I'm interested in how it works and what it actually is. A lot of people, especially on, from, from our audience, probably just started hearing about it now. And they're probably confused, like, what does this mean? How does it work? How does it even use a blockchain? So can you briefly describe for people who aren't too technical how yeah. it works and what it is? Sure. So let, let's just use email as a very simple example so that we can kind of think about it from an analogy standpoint. So the way email works is you probably use Gmail. That's an app, an email service and an app. Um, I don't think most people get confused that if you say you use Gmail and someone uses Yahoo or they have Microsoft Outlook at work, they, they don't, you don't have to reason about it like, oh, I can send you an email. Like Whether they know it's a protocol or not, they, they kind of know email is this thing that's a little bit lower down than the actual service that they use, right? Send me an email is what people would say, not send me a Gmail. So that's the app layer. Email itself is a protocol, as you mentioned, SMTP. It's been around for a really long time. Um, that's kind of this low-level thing. And it's actually permissionless. Like anyone can go boot up an email server and start sending email. That's how spammers work, right? And so one interesting thing is if you want to think about content moderation is you, you actually have content moderation in email. It's called your spam filter. Now, generally, those, those companies do a pretty good job of making sure you get the content that you want and then not the content you don't. But just to think, it's like the default spam filter on Gmail is a really powerful, um, you know, way of preventing. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've worked in crypto a decade. Like Coinbase had a really hard time sending emails at one point because, like, you know, Google got really coarse and just said everything that mentions crypto is spam. And so we kind of had to work through that. And, and we weren't in control, right? So that, that's kind of like one way to think about it. So you have this next layer down. And then actually underneath email is the domain name, right? Because if you think about, like, uh, DNS, that's the name of the protocol. So it's actually a protocol on top of a protocol, right? And, and the average person is not thinking about this, but if you actually just think about the basics, when you give someone an email, uh, you know, dan at gmail.com, that gmail at gmail.com, that's a different protocol that's kind of been kind of like legoed together with SMTP. So that's for the kind of non-technical person. You use a, you use a decentralized protocol every single day that's actually a kind of stack. So let's talk about the Farcaster stack. So start with the app that you would use, Warpcast. It's the app that the core team has built. We actually had a, a very strong point of view that you cannot independently build a, a protocol for social networking without building the actual initial app. Um, ultimately, a social network is defined by how many people are using it. And users don't use a, a protocol or like a tech spec. They use an app. And so Warpcast is, is a thing that we've built feels very much like Twitter, although increasingly starting to feel different in terms of maybe a little bit more hybrid with Reddit. We can talk about frames, which is kind of the new feature we launched recently in a second. But you download Warpcast. There's a very simple onboarding. There's actually no crypto required. 
we use the in-app purchases. Uh, it's actually a, a rule. Apple does not allow you to use crypto in, in the app store. They, they like want to take their 30% cut. And our point of view is the only way you're going to make a social network work is it has to appeal to just like a normal person. Like you have to be able to send it, uh, a, you know, an invite link to your mom. And if she can't make it through or you're, you're a relative, uh, can't make it through that onboarding in a relatively short period of time without having to have like, you know, a wallet or crypto beforehand, you're just not going to make it. So we've taken the very opinionated approach to say, you can't actually pay for crypto to sign up with WorkGas. Like we just force you to go through this very, very web two, very simple onboarding. That's fine because it's it's an app layer, right? And the next layer down is is the kind of Farcaster protocol where we have um, uh, a set of servers. Anyone can go download one. They're called hubs. Uh, and the best way to think about it is it's it's kind of like BitTorrent, right? And And maybe that's dating myself, but it is a kind of set of servers that kind of get together and then they like agree on a rough consensus and eventually over time get to uh, like a global state for the network. So what's important here is it's not a blockchain. Um, and, and, you know, we could talk about what defines a blockchain or why do you need a blockchain, but fundamentally blockchains do one thing really, really well is prevent double spends and double spends are not an issue for a social network, right? You can say hello world twice and that's fine. You just kind of look like you had a typo. Uh, if you send the same, you know, Bitcoin or Solana or ETH, to, that's like a disastrous thing for the network. So that's the layer that is off-chain. 99%, you know, 99.9% of the Farcaster actual activity um, that's flying around the network is off-chain. And what makes it all work is we actually have a very, very small layer on-chain. Our, our version of DNS, that, that like last layer, and that is a simple record. It's just you have a user number. When you sign up, it's the, if you're the like millionth and first user, that's what your user number is. And it just kind of sequentially keeps going. And that user number maps to uh, a, a cryptographic public key, right? Like a, a crypto wallet. And you can think of it like there's a giant phone book on the blockchain. And it's just the user number and what public address, which obviously if you have the private key, you can prove that you own that. And so what happens under the hood is every single time you do something on Farcaster, you follow someone, you update your profile, you cast, you, you like something, you are actually, your app is cryptographically signing that action with the same key that is mapped on chain. And so when it hits that kind of BitTorrent layer, the hubs, the hub is just a very simple server in that sense is it looks at the message and it says, okay, this is coming from 0x Mert. Is this properly signed to the thing that exists on chain? If yes, great, distribute it to everybody else. If no, reject it. And so that architecture, it's a kind of a hybrid architecture, um, is really scalable because the the challenge, and we, and we can talk, I mean, obviously Solana like could could do a lot more on chain than, and than something than Ethereum today in terms of cost. But the reality is with social, like you, you're generating so many more transactions, um, especially as you start to grow, that even the most scalable blockchain is probably not going to hit the the level, at least today, of um, the the number of interactions, right? Every like, follow, reply, all getting aggregated up. Um, and so what we have is this system where we have the, the security of a blockchain underneath with the scalability of Web2 uh, on top. And then you kind of have a transparent ability to look through the whole system. I don't know if that was too technical, but I, I tried to kind of like build it up 
Quick break to tell you about an upcoming event I promise you don't want to miss. It's BlockWorks' biggest and best institutional conference called DAS London. It's a two-day event happening in London this March where we're going to have over 700 institutions, 130 speakers, and a couple thousand of us all under one roof. Crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions, and they're showing up. We have companies from BlackRock to Visa launching real products in the space. We have the real-world asset narrative taking off. We have things like payments that have been exponentially growing. And then we have things like Deepin happening in the Solana ecosystem. There's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space. It's going to be coming on chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 10% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 10 when checking out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. I do have a few follow-ups. For the hub itself, so the hub is some set of servers, are these permissionless so that anybody can run them on their own computers, or how does that work? Yeah, so um, you can be up and running with a hub in, you know, less, le- fewer than 10, less than 10 minutes, uh, you can actually have it, and then it needs t- some time to sync. So roughly 30 minutes, we you know, have the ability to do a snapshot. We've had really creative people figure out how to get them on a Raspberry Pi. I checked the number this morning. We have 1,000 hubs running around the world. The, the core team runs five. So we, oh, wow. th- there are 995 people or, you know, different hubs running. There's no economic incentive to run a hub. They don't get paid. There's no, there's no, uh, because again, it's not a blockchain. There is no technically proven way to actually reward hubs for actually doing the work. Like we could get into it, but like basically you could fake a hub and then just get there. So these are people just running hubs. There's a variety of reasons, altruistic reasons. If you're, if you're, if a company and actually want the forecaster data to be able to use it, like you, you'd run one. Um, I mean, this is always a good example. Like people always are like, oh, well, you know, no one's ever going to run hubs. So first of all, they are. And then the second thing is uh, people don't understand that actually a lot of blockchain nodes, both Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, for those networks are run by people who are not staking or mining. And the best example of this is Coinbase has been running nodes for these cryptocurrency blockchains without doing any kind of like staking directly for a very long time until staking rolled out because Coinbase has a corporate interest in getting the data correctly and then from a security standpoint. And so I think that there's a surface level understanding of like what incentivizes people to run nodes. Yes, if you're paying people, you'll get more. But there actually, there's value in a network that has usage and people wanting just direct access to the data. Yeah, ironically, that's actually the entire premise of Solana's hardware costs, which is to say that people have an interest in the underlying chain's activity as opposed to just the staking rewards which is something Tolly would say uh, frequently. But yeah, and, and look, I, let me let me start off. Is I have nothing but respect for Solana, Tolly, Raj. I think amazing. I love the execution. Like they inspire us to move really fast. Like I like to think that the Warpcast team, which is kind of driving both Farcaster and the Warpcast app, we move pretty quickly. And I think that is something that's underrated in crypto. There's a little bit too much galaxy brain move slowly. And the reality is, like the way to make this technology work overall and actually change the world is to just move quickly and responsibly, right? Like, obviously, there's money to potentially be lost. But I think speed is underrated um, in crypto. I think there's a little bit too much celebratory stuff and a little less, like, focus on, like, okay, how do we 10x to the next thing? And so I, I have deep, deep respect for that attitude that is in the Solana ecosystem. I also think that the, one of the trade-offs with Solana that I think is smart is there are actually going to be a group of applications and, and, you know, companies that say, I'm willing to take a little less decentralization over here for speed. So I, I, I think like people, 
people need to understand that like developers are going to have different requirements and like that you should you shouldn't just like judge it there's no like one true blockchain like I, you know i'm i'm a big e fan and like i just think people who get like maximal and i've been in crypto 10 years and it's like i've dealt with the laser eyes on bitcoin for a long time it's like my biggest crypto position still is bitcoin like i i love bitcoin but like i am interested in the technology moving society forward and i think people should be a way less tribal and more like uh you know uh, polytheistic, if we, if we want to use that in the sense that, like, I, I think just having like the one true chain thesis is not not useful in the macro. Now, the people who are working on it directly, go for it. Like, you're you're all in. But I, my general sense is like, people should be a little bit l- less maximal and a little bit more like it's us versus them in the sense that crypto versus like Elizabeth Warren is the thing that everyone should be worried about. Very well said. Uh, I have two follow-ups on that. And then, and then I think we ought to get to frames because it's a very sure. exciting feature you just released. Um, one, just to like summarize for everybody, you have Farcaster, which is the protocol. All right. And then that is run by hubs, which is permissionless. You could almost call them validators, but they're really storing like the state of Farcaster. Yeah, it's actually global state, which global is important. State. Just like a blockchain, if you run a blockchain node, you have global state. And actually a lot of other decentralized networks don't have global state. That's a, it's a big architectural difference. So for a developer, you get one hub you have the whole thing, the full copy. Same one that Warpcast has. Nice. Okay. And then you have Warpcast, which is on top, which you call a client. It's almost like an app on top of that protocol. Now, any application can be launched. You're really just dog feeding the protocol to prove like, hey, there's something useful here. But we're already seeing, I don't know how many, probably hundreds of other clients have been built today. And we can probably go into some of that. Um, but one thing that pops up when we're talking about this, you're saying, look, only a piece of this is on the blockchain or on optimism slash Ethereum. I'm wondering, do you think a lot of the pushback you're getting for this is because the first time some people are thinking maybe it's crypto, not blockchain, because like if you're coming from the Solano ecosystem or from Ethereum, you almost want, we're going to serve every use case on our blockchain. And now you have this breakout product that's almost showing like, look, we just use a part of crypto, but that's not the main reason people use us. Yeah, I mean, the simplest answer is like Vitalik uses the product. And I think he generally, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he generally thinks the architecture is a smart set of trade-offs, right? It's like in a perfect world, yes, could we put everything on a chain? Yes, like it's an even better developer experience. Um, but I think the the thing that I would say is there's been a, a lot of tribalness in crypto around like on-chain, 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 on-chain. And that's from, I think, a lot of people who, you know, are just on crypto Twitter and like they want their number go up. And I actually think if you just talk to people building, like they care about how do I make the right set of pragmatic trade-offs to build the thing that I want deliver on the promises that I, that I have. In our case, you know, this is actually a credibly neutral decentralized system that, you know, you can't spoof. But don't, you don't go, you know, don't ever go full on chain if you don't have to. Like, if you can build a system that actually creates the level of trust and transparency and it scales, great. Like, that, that, that's my view. Like, money, you can't do that. There's no, like, good version of off-chain. Yes, like, the traditional financial system works like that. But I, I think generally, anytime you're moving money, you, you want that state to have the double spend prevention. But if, if you don't, you, you should be focused on like what can drive the best user experience. And so I think every architectural decision we've started with, you know, um, is what is the best user experience for someone just showing up? So really simple example. Uh, we're obviously in the Ethereum ecosystem. There are a lot of people who would be like, oh, well, you should just use ENS. So, so what, is, what does ENS require? ENS requires you to already have a crypto wallet, it already requires you to have some some underlying cryptocurrency, and then the sophistication to go register uh, in ENS on 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 Ethel One with the gas is like it's just like completely nonsense. You would just never like we wouldn't be talking about any of the scaling that's happened with Farcaster today if that was the flow to sign up. 
We already have drop-off for people just trying to do an in-app purchase with, by definition, their, their phone is required to have a debit card and people still don't want to pay. And so it's like the drop-off that would happen. And, and by the way, 85% of usage of Farcaster is on mobile. Okay. So all these crypto, you know, giga brains who are like, oh, I've got this like web client or like whatever. It doesn't matter. Like when you're talking about consumer apps in 2024, people spend all of their time on mobile. And, and so you have to start from the user experience. It's like if you're trying to kick out someone's wallet and they don't have it or the deep link between the apps, like all that's, they're just going to go back to TikTok. And so like the game is you are, if you're, especially in a social network, it is time is zero sum. It is, and, 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 you know, the people we're competing against meta, their, their North Star metric is literally time spent. Like that's what they start their earnings calls on. And they say, this is how much time spent the average user and we're trying to increase it. And so if you are adding any amount of friction to users uh, on, on any social product, they'll just go back to the, the Web2 ones. So we're not, we're not like competing to see who can come up with the most clever architecture in crypto. We're competing with Web2. <laughs> and so that's where, you know, I have all these people, oh, like it's not on chain enough, so it's not going to work. It's like, okay, well, the users who are using it seem pretty happy. And I can promise you the developers seem like we're delivering on the promise that all of the data, and, and maybe we talk about frames in a second, all of the data that exists on the Farcaster social network is permissionless. Like you can go get all of that right now. No API access required, no $10,000 a month key that Twitter has now. It's just like spin up a hub or pay someone else to run a hub like Alchemy does with nodes and, and you're off and running. And, and so I think that is very much like our approach and, uh, you know, call us pragmatic. Like we're not ideological. Like uh, we, we are going to deliver a credibly neutral decentralized social network because that is actually what I'm interested in and Verna is interested in building. But we are going to make the right set of pragmatic trade-offs along the way because we're not trying to impress 10,000 people on crypto Twitter. We're trying to get a billion people to be using this thing. And the only way you actually do that is just be relentlessly resourceful and, and focused from a pragmatic standpoint of like, okay, how do we do the next 10x? Like, how, how do we just keep bringing people in? And then most importantly with apps, because everyone in crypto loves that pump in terms of the number and, and in the spike chart, day 30 retention. Social networks live and die by like, are people using it 30 days from now, right? Everyone's, everyone's like, oh, Farcaster, Farcaster, Farcaster. What, how are you feeling? It's like, I'll talk to you in 30 days. Like, like let, let, let's actually see if the people who are showing up today who are all excited about it still care about 30 days from now. Because if not, what we did is we created a moment, but we weren't able to actually create retention. And if you look at Meta, like the reason they're as big as they are is all of their products have insane retention. Like you sign up and then you keep using the product. Yeah, well said. And um, even they couldn't really crack uh, the Twitter, uh, their clone threads. Uh, I, I remember I used it for like a week and I, was, I just never went back. And uh, I've already went back to Warpcast uh, more than threads. So that's interesting. And um, yeah, the time spent thing is interesting too. I'm pretty sure that Twitter now boosts the algorithms for longer form content and longer videos just to optimize for that alone. So I, I will have some questions on like the algorithm side on the, the clients themselves. But, but before that, I want to make sure everybody like really understands what's happening when you use the protocol. So, and, and I want to do that with an example. So like assume um, I just, you know, uh, my name is OXMert on, on, on Farcaster and I just casted something and then you click like on it. Can you walk me through exactly the sequence of actions that would trigger in which part would be on chain? Yeah, so none of that action you just mentioned was on chain from the actual action, the like or the cast. But let's let's like show where we we go to the chain to kind of like get the the like kind of confirmation. So when you go click cast, you you press that on Warpcast, the button 
that goes to our backend, our database, like Warpcast side of things, you know, kind of we make sure it's updated so that we can show it to other people on our app and feeds. But then there are other people who aren't using our app, right? So we actually then send it out as a message uh, to a hub, like one of the ones we run. And then that hub takes that message and he goes, okay, uh, this is a cask claiming to be from 0xmert, uh, looks at the cryptographic sign, this is a signature on that, on that message. And it says, okay, this is claiming to come from this, you know, public key or, you know, this, this address and it checks the blockchain. It just like, okay, is that still there? And it's like, yep. Okay. I don't know what your FID is. Call it like, you know, 5,000 or something. The, the, the inner, uh, the user, that's how it maps. And it goes, okay, this is actually properly signed from the person that it claims to be. I'm going to accept this message. And then I'm going to gossip it out to all the other hubs, right? The other thousand hubs. So it just shoots it out. And so very quickly, the whole network gets that message and, and the hubs all store it, right? And so obviously, they're just constantly passing all these little messages back and forth. Now, for the person who's receiving that, they, they, let's say they're using a different app than Warpcast. What they do is they, you know, they're waiting in line for coffee. They open up their phone. They open up that app, call it Lightcast. And their app requests to a hub or their back end, which then goes to the hub and says, give me all of the new messages or the new casts from people I follow, right? Like there's a list of people I follow that zips down. Obviously the app puts it into a feed in some ordering and you now see this cast. And so when you go to like it, it's basically just sending another message up to yours that says, take message, you know, the, the, the pointer to the message that exists in the network and append another like from this FID, and then the hub will check it to make sure that it is. So, so it's, it's always kind of going up and back, up and back, up and back. And, and ultimately, the hubs, they validate, they replicate, and, and distribute, right? Like, that's all they do. And it's just all day long. Um, and so it's, it's, for the technical people, it's a CRDT, which is actually the same kind of like technical thing that you would use for like a collaborative doc editor. And it's an eventually consistent system. It is not, you know, when you have a block in crypto, you know the finality of that block as soon as the block is done, and then you just keep moving. In this system, I can get a message from two days ago. You know, that doesn't happen very often. But the idea is there are no guarantees on when the messages get there, but it, but it in practice, works pretty quickly. Um, and so I would imagine, look, if we have 10, 100, 1,000x scale, we will run into a bunch of scaling issues. We will be able to probably solve them. Um, but yeah, I think that, that that's the like, kind of technical journey for like when you post a message on the network. So none of that hits a blockchain. It's just using the original signup that you did that mapped that key to the, the identity to say, yes, this is actually coming from the person uh, who said they are. Just one thing I'd add to that that I, I thought was pretty interesting as I'm playing around with Warpcast. Like I said, Warpcast is one application, but then there's Supercast, which is another application or client. And I have like a friend graph right now on Warpcast. I have a profile and I have some friends that I follow and people that follow me. When you go into another application, it, can, it grabs your profile from, say, Warpcast as well. And it sees who your follower list is. It sees that friend graph. So it's pretty cool. For example, like when Facebook came out with events, and it's like their events page, when you had a party or you had a big event for work, often people made a Facebook event page. Instead of you having to develop that at Warpcast, you could have someone else develop a client that grabs all your information, all of your interests, and pulls that in and develops that product specifically. So I feel like the innovation and the product velocity can be much higher. Yeah, so we actually have an example. I think it's more of a demo, and, and I'm not sure if it's actively developed anymore, but there was a client called Tiles.xyz, or maybe that's a different crypto company, but it's Tiles is a client within the Farcaster ecosystem. It just showed images from the network. So it said, I don't care about the text. I don't care about any of the, like, you know, the frames or any of these other kind of posts. I just want to show you images and could build that permissionlessly. And so I, I think you're exactly right in that. Um, 
if we can deliver on the user growth, I think developers are going to naturally come and say, oh, look at all this data, right? Like I, I looked at it this morning. I think there are 11 million kind of unique follow connections on the network, right? So there's just all this data now you have completely accessible to you as a developer that you can just build whatever experience. You don't have to ask any permission. Let's say you just cared about F1 racing. You could find all the casts on the network that are tagged with F1 racing. Uh, we have this feature called channels that helps organize some of the content. And you could just like build the ultimate F1 racing client. So think of like if you're into F1 racing and you're like watching a race and you're like trying to get all the, you know, the tweets and you're getting random other ones because Twitter doesn't actually have that. Like you could just build like the dedicated app, the second screen app for when you're going to watch an F1 race. And so like I'm, I'm excited for all of that. I think the, the thing I was wrong on and kind of Rune and I both had this vision of like, okay, well, if we can just get it started, people will build apps and then that will actually drive the growth. Not the case. The, the hardest thing for people in crypto, developers in crypto, is getting users. So why are they going to go get users for your protocol when if they were able to figure out how to get users, they could just keep it for the app themselves? So it really turned us on to this idea that like we, we call it product-led protocol development. We have to be the one responsible for getting the users. So Warpcast, we have to do the top of funnel. We have to do the onboarding. We have to do the marketing. And if you show up to Warpcast, it's like you come for you come for this default client and then you stay for this this whole ecosystem of clients. That is actually a much more uh, realistic strategy. And I think we're just starting, you know, and this is all new in the last two weeks, now getting to a scale of daily active users on the protocol where another developer say, like, actually, I could go build a real business just, you know, peeling off people from Warpcast to focus on this like very, you know, kind of vertical or, or niche client. And so our goal from a protocol standpoint, right, like put the protocol out on it, 10, 100,000 X, the number of daily active users on Warpcast, because it fundamentally benefits the entire ecosystem, because now everyone has that, that kind of like easy sign-on identity that can just like zip between apps, as you point out, like you just go to another app, you don't have to fill out any information, it's all just there. I think the, the best part about this is the kind of uh, permissionless innovation, let's say that it enables developers, right? Like most people forget that during the early days of Facebook, it was like the the uh, the those like weird little Facebook games that really helped it grow. Um, and but like as a developer, it's kind of like building on quicksand where you kind of just collapse at any moment. But with Farcaster, you kind of have that guarantee in a sense that because it's because it's permissionless. So that's pretty cool. Um, I do want to, and then I want to pull on the developer thread and building on Farcaster, and obviously uh, frames is really what got everybody talking. I do have one question before that, which is, how do you, as, as, a, as a business, because you are a venture-funded business, how do you make money from this? What is the, how does this, because obviously the early criticism of like Twitter and maybe the social stuff was like, oh, these guys don't make money. And then maybe they'll just figure out after and then it's just through ads. How, how do you approach this? Yeah, so, so two things. So one, the protocol actually has a fee to sign up. So kind of like domain names, um, you pay an annual fee to use the protocol. And I think a lot of people told us no one would do that, you know, like in terms of use it. And like I said, I think, we, so we went permissionless. People started to have to pay starting in October. And we just last night had our 100,000th up. So someone just paying, you know, and this is all abstracted, right? Like, so it's really simple UI and Warpcast. But behind the scenes, every person uh, signing up is paying a fee to the protocol per year. And so we'll have some number of people churn, maybe a bunch of them. But we'll we'll get to a place where we'll have a sense of if you sign up, the most likely you're going to end up paying the three five dollars. The prices fluctuate a little bit, but we'll end up finding a steady state long term. And so every user on the network is actually just paying per year. So so right out of the gate, like you you have a business model for for the protocol. I think Warpcast, which isn't taking that fee, 
um, has the ability to kind of like start to offer like convenience features that, you know, if you're, if you're using Warpcast as your daily driver, um, in the same way that I think, you know, crypto wallets make money on swaps or, or certain like core actions that you do, just by virtue of you kind of being the window into this network, there are going to be lots of opportunities to, uh, I think, make money. And, and I actually be in a way that is aligned with the user rather than adversarial, which I think generally advertising is. And, and the, the reason is every Warpcast user has a wallet under the hood, right? So the, the idea is that we have the ability to kind of like start to integrate into specific actions on chain. I don't think we have any interest in having like your portfolio, like your normal kind of like crypto wallet. Our, our version is there are going to be certain things that you want to do on chain within the context of a social app, and we can actually enable that. And in doing so, take a, take a small fee, um, which obviously is kind of like Coinbase's business model at a broad sense. But I think more specifically, if you look at most of the big crypto wallets, the MetaMasks, the Phantoms, the Coinbase wallets of the world, the primary business model is to, to monetize a small number of actions, and that tends to be pretty good. I think the other thing that we're really conscious of, um, so Vern and I had been at Coinbase while things were scaling. Uh, you know, Coinbase got to be really big in 2021, and I think they've since, like, you know, kind of uh, right-sized the ship in terms of the team size. We're a 12-person team, and we hired really senior folks, most of actually uh, whom we worked with at Coinbase, and my goal is to just never have a lot of headcount. And I think that that is actually really important. Um, you know, we will, is, as we scale, we are going to have to have other people who, who can kind of like help scale, especially on like the, the ops side of things. But I think if we can be really, really focused, we can actually run um, a company, uh, like a social media company with a very small operating cost from a you know, headcount, which tends to be the primary cost for these things. And in doing so, then, you know, you, you don't have to monetize at a crazy rate, right? Like Twitter, Twitter was a public company for 10 years or, you know, eight years before Elon bought uh, Twitter. They never made money. Like they lost money every single, like it was just like they were way too overstaffed, right? Now, obviously they have a different issue with their advertisers, but I think you, just like building a company slightly different in the non-zero interest rate world is probably how we want to approach it. Um, and and here, here are the high watermarks to me. So 2012, Instagram sold to Facebook. 2012. So this is 12 years ago. Think about all of the improvements to developer tooling, infrastructure. Okay. They sold to Facebook when they had 27 million users. 13 people. Why, 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 I don't, we, we have, you know, record numbers for us right now. We have 50,000 people using the app uh, today. Like not even comparable. So it's like, and we, we should be able to like, you know, be two or three X their size with the same group of people. And so that is a one. And then obviously WhatsApp. And, and by the way, I'm giving two examples of Facebook happened to buy. I don't think Facebook is buying any more companies like this. I don't think the government will let them. And I have no interest in selling there. But I think um, the point is when WhatsApp sold for $17 billion, they had 55 people and they had 400 million users. And so like this whole thing where you have to have this huge bloated cost structure and like, you know, you have to make money off of the ads. Like It's like, no, WhatsApp's original business model, I actually think was underrated, right? Um, they're, they're subsidized by Meta now. And obviously they're starting to make money in the businesses, but it used to be just pay $1 per user per year. And they had plenty of penetration globally, right? Like these are people who were paying SMS fees before. And so I, I think that there are some lessons that for whatever reason, we've kind of forgot that like early scale in social media, like could be achieved with very small teams. Uh, yeah. So that, that's, how I think how we're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Fun uh, trivia fact for the audience uh, is that WhatsApp was inspired by Kick Messenger uh, and the founder, Ted, was actually on the show twice. So if you want to check that out, uh, I think they actually had a similar strategy, a very small team. 
Um, okay, so I want to talk about frames. That is, um, I mean, I was on Farcaster before, and uh, I've actually lost uh, my first account because I forgot my um, uh, phrase. We, but, we have uh, a recovery system, so we can get you set back yeah, up. Yeah, so I did get it back, but then I had already made the other one, so now um, I have an identity crisis. And um, that's what um, I, I was scrolling one day, and then I saw, wait a minute, you can actually interact with a with a post, uh, and the post can actually trigger an on-chain action. That's pretty crazy. It sounds so simple, and it's one of those things that you're like, wait a minute, that is obvious. But it's it wasn't there before. It's not, I haven't seen any other social network. And so I, could you briefly describe what frames are how they work and why they're exciting. Great. So let me start again, web two, because I think the average listener is going to have a better conception. Two, two different social networks. Instagram has stories. And you may have gone on Instagram and used an Instagram story where someone has a little poll in their story or the little slider that like, how much do you love this photo of my dog? Um, so that's an interactive post, if you think about it, right? Like the average post, you have like the ability to reply, but the ability to kind of like interact in kind of like a little widget on, on a post. That's one example. And then obviously with Twitter, uh, the only interactive post type Twitter has is is a poll. So you can pick how many options, you put it there, you click as the, the viewer, and then you can actually see the results. Um, that's it. And, and, and I think the important thing in both Instagram and, and Twitter's case is that interactivity and those features are defined by the, the corporate, right? So it's like, I just can't go add some random set of buttons to a tweet. Like it's like, nope, you have polls or that's it. So what Farcaster Frames does is it takes the kind of form factor of a tweet and it says, hey, developer, you get this little canvas and, and you have, it's really simple. You have a space for an image and then up to four, four little buttons and you can like change the text on the button. And then we just added on Friday the ability to do text input. So like one text box. And so it's this kind of very constrained um, primitive but completely expressive in, in terms of like what that image could be and what those buttons could be. And then when you click, what, what actually happens behind the scenes. So naturally what happened was um, we, we had actually spent a lot of time really trying to cater to like crypto native developers over the last three years. That, that, was our, that was actually our biggest critique is like, oh, Farcasters is a bunch of like nerds. And they, they like, you know, they're interested in like weird on-chain SVGs and all this other kind of like stuff that it's like, that's never going to go mainstream, right? Um, we, we didn't really actually have any like kind of connective tissue into like, I would say like the more DeFi, DGen component of crypto Twitter. It's like the one area we had any progress in, in terms of growing daily active users was with developers. And so we, we had kind of had a couple of good weeks, just like we had been really grinding away on your, your typical like social network growth stuff. And then when we launched frames and we'd had this idea for a while and it just felt like the kind of right time. It was a little bit of like a gut thing it just like took off like fire because now all of a sudden all these developers in the network in a very short period of time, right? It's so simple, just an image and a couple of buttons and some, you know, decide how that's going to work on, on your server. People were up and running with frames within like an hour. And, and then what, what was the real magic moment and in retrospect, more obvious is the killer feature for frames is because you get the distribution of a feed, right? I don't have to have you go sign up for another app, kick you out to a browser or the app store Stuff that consumers don't want to do, right? Like you're using Farcast, you're sitting on your phone, uh, you're waiting in line for coffee, you see something in the feed, there's a button, you hit the button. And if that says button says like mint an NFT and it just magically happens, you don't have to leave the app. Naturally, those things are going to be very popular. And so the the distribution that these developers started to get was they were like, I, I've been working in crypto for three, four years. And like, I had never been able to get more than like a couple hundred users over the entire year. 
and I had like 5,000 people use my frame. And so this, this kind of like virality that can kind of actually happen within a feed and a social network, um, that, that is the thing that kind of, I think, caught fire and then naturally created a narrative and started bringing people in. And I think with crypto people, you, you can know that it's like anytime you're giving away free NFTs, if they think that they're interesting, like people will show up. Um, but what's two, two interesting things. One, um, we didn't do like we, we didn't have to give anything away. It's just like other developers trying to find users. And so it kind of is this marketplace um, in terms of, you know, people building things and then people using them. And then the second thing is, this is not necessarily, as you point out, it's, it's not like some revolutionary idea. This is not Neuralink or OpenAI with ChatGPT. This is, this is a rehash of Facebook's app platform back from, you know, 2007, 2008, right? Back in the days when Zenga Poker and Farmville were really big. And I actually don't have a good answer. I, I'm actually curious to learn a little bit more why it never made the jump to mobile. So it was huge on Facebook desktop. And then Facebook kind of had this like existential crisis when they went public in 2012. And they really, they went all in on focusing on mobile, but they never brought the app platform. And maybe, maybe someone, you know, can give me a good answer, but, but basically it just didn't exist. And then, so no one else built these, these idea of like using a feed and a social network to distribute an app. Um, what it ended up turning into was actually app install ads, right? So Facebook makes a lot of money from charging apps to just put an ad in the feed, right? Twitter, Twitter, the same. Um, but in this case, we're saying you use your distribution developer or you use your audience or a viral mechanic, you're going to get as much distribution. It's not like Twitter where if you put a link, we don't nerf like, like, so it's, it's, um, really it's like a true, if, if you build something interesting, you are going to get distribution. And so I think that naturally is just really interesting for developers and, and, and especially in crypto and crypto winter, like, um, th that I think is what's resonating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I don't want to be that guy, but um, I did comment about this a few times um, about how I really like frames and stuff. And you can probably guess uh, what the common response was uh, from the skeptical developer folks, uh, which is security and how this could potentially make it easier for certain folks to, I don't know, add like a drainer or something. And I don't want to focus just on that part. I want to take that moment to maybe zoom out and explain exactly how frames work on maybe a little bit on the high level, like technical background and how, um, yeah, I guess let's just start with that. And then maybe we can weave in security there. Sure. So one, you know, one double click lower in how Farcaster works is there actually, I, I, I lied before, there are two key pairs that we're dealing with. So we have one that's actually an ECDSA key. It's, an, it's essentially what you would call an Ethereum address, right? Or a wallet as a normal person. Um, and then we have a different key that we kind of use the, that, that root crypto key that lives on your device to create a second key called an EDDSA key. It's just a different kind of mathematical curve to create the crypto. And we actually store that in the back end in the cloud with Warpcast, so which makes it really easy. You don't need to like connect your wallet every time if you're, if you're going to web or mobile. The other inside baseball thing, and this comes from the fact that I was at Coinbase for five years, is if you try to store an ECDSA key that, that, for Ethereum um, in the cloud, that's illegal to do in the United States unless you have a license. You need the bit license in New York, and it's actually your crypto custodian, your Coinbase. You're, holding, you're custodially holding an address. And it kind of doesn't even matter the way the law is written if, if you have crypto in it or not. If you're doing it on behalf of a user, basically you're regulated like a financial institution. So last thing I want to do is, is go have to deal with that. So change the crypto curve. You can't move uh, crypto with it. Now, 
for those paying attention at home, EDDSA keys do work with Solana. So <laughs> there is potentially a, a whole other uh, can of worms there, but, but for the sake of the argument. So this EDDSA key, this, this kind of not, can't move crypto money, but is tied, it's linked to that one that's on chain. That's actually the thing that is authenticating you every time you click a frame. So when you click a frame, you're, you're basically saying, hey, I'm you know, DWR on you know, Twitter or uh, Farcaster, and I'm FID3, that's my user number. And when I click, Warpcast is actually sending that along to the developer saying, yep, like here's the cryptographic signature. You don't even have to trust us. You can go look at a hub and then on chain to see that this like whole thing maps. And that can instantly happen, right? And so as a result of that, it, and, and because the social graph is public and every user has the ability to add as many Ethereum addresses to their profile as they want, again, all through these kind of like cryptographically signed chain of proofs. And we try to make it as simple for the user, but underneath the hood, the developer gets this and they go, okay, great. So Dan clicks on a, a little button in the frame and says mint NFT. I didn't have to send any crypto. I didn't have to connect my wallet. But what the frame developer is looking is going, okay, Dan's profile. Okay, it seems like he's a d- big deal on Farcaster. Great, has a decent amount of followers, probably not spammy. Um, now the next call they're making in their backend is they're saying, give me the Dan's uh, connected Ethereum address, like the address that he has his NFTs in. Pulls that permissionlessly. And then they just mint the NFT directly to that address. So there was no security risk there because you, what you're actually just saying is, yeah, I have this like, it's like having a mailbox like that someone can slip mail into. It's like, yep, that's my address. Like you can go put stuff in there. I am not touching it with anything that could drain my wallet. And so that is also, I think, some of the thing that's driving it is because there is no kind of security setting. And, and uh, preview, and we've said this uh, publicly, we are going to add more complex on-chain transactions uh, to frames. But that is going to have a, a lot more security consideration. And, and fortunately, again, the team has worked at Coinbase, so we've, we've thought through this stuff from a UX standpoint. But there's going to be a big difference between you kind of your normal click of a frame, which you don't have to think, versus anytime someone's going to be requesting to do something with your wallet, um, we're going to have to take a more aggressive action. And so uh, it, it's interesting because actually when we launched frames, we didn't even think that people would be so aggressive to put stuff on chain. And actually give Jesse Pollock at base, he was just, he jumped on it in the first weekend and really, really pushed to just like make these frame developers much easier to kind of create these like relayers that are basically generating a transaction on behalf of the user with their own funds. And so th- that that's actually kind of the breakthrough is because we have this permissionless graph and all of these connected addresses, uh, people have been able to make all these frames. And naturally, there's a bunch of them that I think I would consider more in the degen camp of things in terms of you click a button and something happens on chain and and I, I, I'm I am not involved in any of that stuff. I like my belief is personal freedom people should be able to do what they want. They have to live their own consequences of things. And so I think that that's kind of where we are. And like I said, I think once we add on-chain transactions natively into frames, we're gonna have to kick up the security UX pretty significantly. But I think we have a couple of things that we could potentially do. One, we're a crypto native app, right? So there are some great tools out there, like uh, there's a company Blockade and, and a few others that can do transaction simulation. And, and so unlike Twitter, where you put a drainer link, I actually had a really bad experience of this in the fall. My Twitter account got hacked. I had, you know, two-factor. I had like a YubiKey, like, like I don't know what happened. Uh, Twitter never gave me an answer. I think it was an inside job. But the reality is someone got access to my account and they put out a drainer link on Twitter. People clicked it and lost money. But on a crypto native social network, you could say, okay, we're actually just going to scan every link that gets shared, right? Every frame that gets shared. And we're going to see, does this have like a very, you know, obviously the most very sophisticated exploits, but there are a lot of very simple ones. And so you'd change the meta on on wallet draining to make it be like, okay, you have to really, really uh, nail it. And even there, I think just like getting people comfortable with like 
big warning. Like you slide like, hey, I'm acknowledging that if I go do this, I could lose everything. Um, I don't think you can ever get 100% safety. And I don't think that, that is actually desirable because then you don't have innovation. But I think we can significantly improve the UX on that. Yeah, Dan, one of the revenue sources you could have is like a buy with Prime, but buy with Warpcast, which is like an authenticated way to, to buy something. Because one thing that really stuck out to me, and you talked about distribution, is Jason, who's the co-founder of Blockworks. He's talking about right now, we try to sell tickets to our conferences. And if you listen to the show, you've heard me talk about our conference all the time. But it's actually pretty hard because you can do a tweet. You don't want to put a link because it's going to be nuked by Twitter on any engagement. And then if someone does click it, they get brought to our website. They have to click again. They have to link a card. But with frames... You could actually do this all in app in probably one or two clicks. And I think that distribution and that e-commerce at your fingertips is huge. Yes. So I think that one of the more fun fun examples someone did in the first weekend is they built a, a shopping cart. It was amazing. Within four buttons and an image, they were able to create a, it was a Girl Scout cookie store. So you could pick up the, the four different types of Girl Scout cookies, do all this. And then at the end, you clicked it and it kicked you to Coinbase Commerce to do checkout. And it was just like, I, I would have never expected someone to be able to be that creative to get in a frame. And so you can naturally look at that and say, okay, well, we could cryptographically sign uh, address information, right? In terms of like shipping address. And like, if you, if you, again, you would opt in, if you trust Warpcast, like then the ability for you to just like one click checkout from the feed. Um, and I think what's important is it's not like, you know, it, TikTok has a shop and so does Instagram, but those are very constrained and there's a huge tax from, from the kind of app itself. And so you could say, hey, look, part of the appeal of Farcaster is own your own distribution, own, you know, like, I think it would be so short-sighted for us to be like, oh, this is a good opportunity for us to take a tax. It's just like, no, facilitate, like, make it as easy as possible for uh, people to do effectively commerce in the feed, and you'll just get more activity in the feed. And like, you can figure out ways and conveniences to be user-aligned in making money. But I think, like, ride ride the growth at people who, who want to build interesting things. And actually, the funny you mentioned that right before I got on this podcast, uh, one of the developers who've been really active on frames just used the text input and basically is like, here's an event I'm hosting next week. Uh, put your email in and boom, like you just, and he's like, I got more signups. I got like 150 signups for this event in, you know, 15 minutes. Then I had a Luma link that I'd been putting out on Twitter and I got 15 signups over a week. And so the idea of just like meeting the user where they are, not making them have to move out of the app, um, not nerfing links, like basically just like focus on like, what, what do people actually want instead of like, what is the uh, time spent ad algorithm need? And I think like part of that is just not having that business model allows us to actually offer these delightful experiences. How do you see the frames evolving? Because right now they're kind of ephemeral in the sense that they're on your timeline, but they're like, how do you find a frame from a week ago? Like, do you imagine having an app store? Because right now, I think the thing you have added maybe in the last week, it's like trending frames, but I don't have a great place to go find maybe the top frames in the ecosystem. Are you hiding in our security, our uh, strategy meetings? I think, um, so I think one of the, I think one of the challenges is, so you have all this excitement and people are using frames and, and developers are getting usage, which is great. But like I said before, day 30 retention, whether it's Farcaster or a frame developer, that is actually the thing that, that's, that's how you build a durable business. Um, and so I think creating the right set of features, both within Warpcast and at the kind of like, because frames itself is like a decentralized spec. So anyone can implement it. Other protocols can implement it. Um, but I think creating the right set of features at both the, that, that level and then at the Warpcast level, because there's stuff that we can do uh, just like make things even easier um, that allow developers to build durable, retained relationships with users, that would be the big unlock. I think that there are a little bit, um, 
you're, it's a little tricky because Apple does not like the idea of an app store within an app store. Uh, you can do that in Europe now, but they're making it really hard. You certainly cannot do that uh, in, in the current paradigm of like, you can't call things apps, right? So they're, they're you know, and, and so I think we just have to be thoughtful about how we do that. And I, I, think, I think in doing so, there's definitely a path for building an ongoing relationship with a, a frame developer without requiring you to have to go immediately install their app. And you can kind of think of it as like almost like you discover an app via a frame in the feed. You might interact with it for the first time. It's useful. Maybe there's some way to kind of continue to use it, you know, within extending the functionality of Warpcast. And then as you get to be more and more of a power user of whatever app, then realistically, you should probably go install their app or download it. But, but you could imagine this kind of like progressive warming up to a new app. And I think that's really desirable. Like, I, I think... I actually, if I just put on my hat of like what's good for the protocol is like you actually want people to discover and onboard and kind of do those first few interactions within an app like Warpcast. But actually, it's really healthy long term to get them to to install a new app because now that there's like, you know, and we, we had this as a very uh, simple example this week is we had so much uh, traffic, uh, Warpcast kept going down. Like, you know, we're kind of trying to improve X and Y and, and, and you know, AWS stuff. And Supercast, the one of the other clients in the network worked completely fine, just like kept posting messages to hubs. And, and, and so I think it's really good for the protocol to actually get to a place where you have many different apps and services. And so thinking about ways to facilitate that, like the thing I always tell people is like what you just have to, which is always a little hard in crypto because, you know, some, some scammers and grifters out there, but fundamentally you have to trust Vern and myself. Like we've been working on this for three years there are th- parts of the system that actually are, are credibly neutral and decentralized. And there are other parts that are brand new and we're still trying to figure it out. And prematurely decentralizing is just going to be like too slow. And like, actually we need to, going back to this idea of speed, like we should be optimizing for speed, figuring out the right shape of the feature and what users want. And once that happens, then figuring out, okay, like we, this, this seems to be working. How, how can we actually appropriately decentralize it? And so that Warpcast is not a single point of failure, but, um, that's going to be a while before I think Warpcast is like not just like the primary show. And I think that that's okay. Like, I think if we can 100x or 1,000x the number of users on Farcaster, I don't think any of the developers in the ecosystem will care because they'll have actual users that they can go after. And, but I do think like, just in my own sense, if like Farcaster ends up being successful, I don't want to be in a position where if, you know, I or, or Varun were not at Warpcast then you're setting this company up to be run by, you know, some corporate minions who are like, oh, let's get more extractive, right? Like one critique of Apple today, and obviously they've been phenomenally successful. So like, I think anyone who's like, oh, Apple, you know, whatever, it's like, no, no, it's the most valuable company in the world. But in a world where Steve Jobs is still there, and I, again, nothing but respect for Tim Cook, there's a level of just like, no, this is not what I stand for. And maybe some of these app store rules that have been kind of so contentious with Epic and stuff, that would have just been a, I'm doing it because it's the right thing rather than the the thing for shareholders. And I think sometimes that's actually like the, the founder of a company is able to kind of make that call. And I think so from our standpoint, if Farcaster is working, like we want to actually make it so that we can shift from don't be evil, where I think we still are today in the sense that you have to trust us to can't be evil, which is actually enshrining as much on-chain um, in the core governance and core mechanics of how the system works. So that if if Warpcast was to go rogue, seamlessly people could just migrate to a new client and then there's no downtime. And I think that would be a huge success for creating something I think is anti-fragile and Lindy. Talking about 
app stores and speed. Uh, I do have to mention Solano, of course. Um, so uh, there is the there's the mobile app store, which kind of uh, on, on the Solana devices that kind of tries to help with this. But obviously, distribution is a different question there. Um, but what I am interested in is uh, you announced that you will be adding um, Solana support. Uh, I think I kind of get what that means with uh, how you described how Warpcast actually stores the the keys and, and whatnot uh, for certain schemes. But can you describe just very briefly for the DGENs who are all listening for this purpose, uh, what the Solana support is? Yeah, so um, Solana support has been one of the biggest requests we've had at the protocol level. I think prior to even a month ago, we were just like, we need to focus on the core of like what is actually working um, for us in terms of growth. But in a world where we frames is actually the thing driving growth for us, then it's it's a very obvious answer to allow people to link a Solana wallet to their Farcaster ID. And so tactically, what does that mean? You have your you know dot soul, your primary hot wallet in Phantom. You're going to be able to go through like a connect wallet flow um, and sign. I don't know what the equivalent in Solana is of an EIP seven one two signature, like a a like verified way of like not having it be a wallet drainer, but more of like a sign in with Ethereum type thing. So it'd be like a sign in with a thought of Solana in a way that is just kind of saying, hey, my Farcaster ID over here, this number is associated with this address on Solana, and if that Proof happens, again, that's off-chain, that lives on a hub. That means any developer, when you go to click on a frame, could say, hey, this is minting to Solana. So you click and you don't have a Solana address uh, linked, they, they'll probably flop, you know, the frame will say, link a Solana address to your Farcaster account. And if you do, you would immediately mint, right? And, and this is an area that I'm still trying to get up to speed on, like compressed NFTs, drip, like there's a whole ecosystem in Solana that uh, I think is really vibrant and interesting. And so you could imagine now getting the f- distribution directly in feed. Um, I don't know. I, I think th- this is where I'm a big believer in like, you, you should give choice to developers and then let the developers choose what the right solution is for them. And, and, and who knows, like maybe, maybe it ends up being that Solana NFTs um, through a, a primitive like frames, that's actually a winning combination, right? And it's not to say all of it would move, but like maybe that ends up being the dominant thing. And so I think... Um, Giving that to developers is is respecting their ability to make choices rather than being prescriptive, like this is the way to do it. And I think that is something I learned at Coinbase is I think Coinbase too early on got a little too religious about like, oh, these are the only things. And and the reality is it was almost like people hated them more in that era versus now in the era of like, oh yeah, Coinbase, they just list anything and, and maybe too many things if, if you're talking to the wrong person. But But the point being is that Coinbase actually in some ways has a, a level of neutrality around like, okay, they're just like a big piece of crypto infrastructure in this entire industry. And, and it's not like they're trying to kingmake. And so I, I think that is, the, that is the mentality. And, you know, I, I risk the, run the risk of some ETH maxis who may be using Farcaster to be like, oh, like you, you don't love Ethereum. It's like, no, like the thing is literally running on OP mainnet secured by Ethereum, like reveal preference here. I think it's more around the idea that like, I, going back to what I said before is I think people should be way more concerned about Elizabeth Warren then, you know, whatever. I don't even know what these terms are. Manlets and like, you know, <laughs> like, it's like all these people fighting on Twitter. And I'm just like, guys, like, there is like this like evil person who wants to take all of your crypto and ban this thing. Like, that's who we should be focused on. Um, not, not like, you know, the Anon account on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's like part of it. I think people just have fun. Like, I, I think there's like the stated part is like, oh, I hate these people. But the reality is it's like, kind of fun to go and, and fight with people on <laughs> online um 
like my, my point is that I Twitter is mostly entertainment and, and I think that's right. But I think that that's my view is you should just give developers choice, consumers choice, and then, you know, what whatever the right products for the right people, like that, that that's how it should work. And and here's the best part. If you don't like what Warpcast is doing in terms of this, you could build a client that is only for ETH maxis. That that's the beauty of the system. And so um, you know, I got a decent number of complaints, especially this last week. You know, we've had some downtime and whatever, and people are complaining to me that I'm doing it the wrong way. And my my favorite answer to give them is like, well, you could build your own client, but sounds like you probably can't. So why don't you shut up? One thing that um, I wanted to ask actually is the uh, the go to market, right? Like, because <clears throat> you said you guys realized that on the protocol level, you actually have to get users. So, like, to get users, obviously uh, on the protocol level. Um, most of your audience currently is, um, crypto native and crypto native, maybe a bit more on the Ethereum side. Um, but you obviously want to grow this to a billion users, which is outside of crypto as well. How do you think about that? How, how, how will you get those users? You think? Yeah. So my, my view is if you go too broad, too fast, you, you don't have kind of like any connective tissue between people. And I think you're better off starting small and narrow and kind of winning, a very discrete segment and then kind of working your way out. I think it worked really well for Facebook. We're in, by no means on a Facebook growth trajectory, but start with one college, move to others, move to all colleges, then eventually open up to other people. People forget that Facebook was closed for two years. Like you had to have a .edu email address. Everyone thinks in social, everything needs to grow fast. And it's like, which app has the most daily active users? How long were they in a closed beta for? Okay. Um, but I think uh, the, the natural adjacency for us is like, okay, like we, we my goal is very explicitly win crypto Twitter. Like if, if crypto Twitter is now just Farcaster over the next year or two, that that is a big win. Uh, because I also, like, I've been in crypto for 10 years. Like I, I believe crypto is a huge macro tailwind for this stuff. And more and more people will get crypto pilled one way or another. Um, and there will be people who want to own the assets directly. And there are other people who just want to actually use the apps, you know, the, the free NFT, the collectible, you buy a Taylor Swift ticket and somehow it's on chain. Like th- that all stuff is going to happen over the next 10 years is I'm betting my career on it. Um, and it's worked out so well so far and like, I'm fine dealing through the winners, but I think, um, to get to a billion people, obviously you, you have to keep expanding and, and maybe, maybe you never actually get to a billion people like Twitter maybe is the upper limit of people who want this, but I actually think you can get to a billion because there's nothing stopping you for actually building a Facebook like experience on top of this protocol. Like the beauty of this is the graph and the data is all open. So you can actually, you could have a TikTok, you could have a YouTube and like it all can kind of interplay together and you're all working off that same core. Um, and so I think where I'm just like focused is like, okay, I'm trying to get to a hundred thousand daily active users. And then once I'm at a hundred thousand, it's like, what's the path to a million? And then a million to like, just think in orders of magnitude. Like, you know, we were this time last year hovering at like a thousand daily active users and it took us a year. Like it was a grind last year. And and just like literally last week was the first time we hit 10,000 and then we're at 50,000 now. So it's like, it's, it's gone vertical, but like the idea is just like, you can't worry about the, if you're worrying about a billion, when you have a thousand, like just, you're going to get crushed in terms of the anxiety. And so it's just like, okay, how can I grind up to that next thing, right? And so now, like, you know, I, I thought 10,000, 100,000 would be crazy. And it's like, okay, we're already halfway there in, in a few days. Day 30 retention is what we need to focus on. But like, okay, so we could potentially be at 100,000 users in, in the next couple of weeks. And then it's like, okay, how do we go from that to the next one? So um, I think that is very much like my mentality. And if I was to guess, it would be like, what are the things that are adjacent to crypto? It's like maybe people who are into longevity, right? Like think of the subreddits. Like if you just go to the ones that like what overlap are those subreddits with crypto Twitter? 
and then just kind of go after that and say, hey, better network. You you and and solve it through things like mods on Reddit don't make money. Maybe you can make money as a as a mod on a Coinbase or a Farcaster channel. And like I think it's just kind of working your way through the idea maze and, and then figuring out naturally who to um, go after. I also just generally think that like if you look at the last cycle. Uh, it was the first time crypto really brought, you know, and there were some negative elements to it, but like mainstream names were associating themselves with crypto for the first time. Like I, I'd been in, you know, crypto a long time and, and that had never happened. And so, you know, Steph Curry had a board ape as his, um, you know, OBJ with like a punk. So, so, so I think that that status will continue to grow despite the bumps along the way. And so in that world, like that's actually how Twitter happened, right? So Twitter was this weird nerdy thing in San Francisco for a while. Then Ashton Kutcher raised CNN to a million followers and it kind of started to suck in celebrities. And then like once the celebrities are there, it's like people don't actually care if it's centralized, if it, like you can do whatever. Like if Kim Kardashian's posting updates uh, and maybe Kim Kardashian's posting a frame, I can promise you as many normies as that follow, you know, Kim on Instagram are going to show up. Um, and so I think it's just like, just keep grinding and then, and then you know, pay attention of like, okay, what do we think the, the, the literal next best plan to get us to the next order of magnitude? Don't, don't worry too much about the, the end goal. Yeah. <clears throat> I've heard you say how when Twitter first started, people would just tweet like, I ate a banana for lunch. And then, you know, 10 years later, it's like a threat to democracy. So these things can be slow, but then they have a really big impact. And a little inside baseball for anybody listening, uh, crypto users probably monetize like five to 10 times more than your average user. We have like podcasts in macro and in crypto, and it's just very hard to reach a crypto audience. And also you kind of have monopoly money sitting in your wallet and they're much more likely to spend money. So it's not a bad segment to have. Yeah, but, I actually just to, to, to play on yeah. that. So Facebook makes $200 per user per year in the US. That's their best monetizing market. I think the rest of the world is something like 12. Um, so still really good. Like, But basically everyone else sucks in social media, at least the, the Western companies. I, I, ByteDance, I think, does really well. But um, so $200 per user per year, that's like basically the only people who can achieve that is Meta because they're like that much bigger and like that much better at the ad stuff. Um, I think that's completely achievable within crypto, right? In the sense that like the, because you can take cuts of actual transactions. The advertising just monetizes at such a lower rate. And so the idea is that if you are actually facilitating interesting things in feed, not just digital items, but like, you know, buying Girl Scout cookies, if that's what you want to do. And it's like really simple user experience or some sneaker drop or something like that. And um, yeah, again, you you are offering kind of a user aligned and, and distribution aligned experience where you're actually getting people to be like, okay, instead of doing my sneaker drop on Twitter or Instagram, I'm doing a forecaster because I can capture more of the upside. And it's worth me actually pushing my my biggest fans to follow me on Farcaster because then I actually monetize it at a better rate. And so I, I'm, I'm very bullish. I think you can't really focus on that until you actually hit some amount of scale. But so that's why we're just like relentlessly focused on it's like, how do we grow Dow and retain Dow, right? Because you don't get credit for people who signed up. You get credit for people who show up every day. After you left Coinbase, you at least spent a year or two, I think, just exploring different ideas and looking where you could have the most impact. And a big part of that is you were studying history. And I think you even specifically studied communism and just how, you know, human and government has changed over time. But one big thing you talk about is like the drivers of history. I'm just curious, after studying all that, going through a lot of this, you know, the startup evolution, what do you, what do you think are the big drivers of history right now um, that you're seeing? Oh, geez, that's a big question. And I would preface that with, the, I think the thing I learned when I was off between Coinbase and Farcaster is how little I actually know. So it's a little dangerous to, to take big swing of opinions, but I, I'm not not afraid. I think um, there's this kind of meta debate in history of like, okay, do you just have these big macro trends that kind of just pull history forward? Or is it, you know, the, the great man of history theory? 
Um, and I think there's probably some amount of both, but I think in kind of building a, a company for the first time, right? Like I was early at Coinbase and I'm proud of the contributions and, and Varun the same way, I think with, with Coinbase, but it was very much Brian and Fred who kind of like had the vision and the, the drive and the, the persistence to go through there. I, I think human agency and like willingness to push and just show up every day, even when it's hard and keep doing that. Um, I, I think it's easy to underrate that from like an armchair if you've never had to do that. And I think like in doing this company and like I'm the first one to say like we only matters, the scoreboard only matters when you actually get to exit or liquidity or some, some, some meaningful milestone where it's like, okay, you, you know, we're, we're building this as a, a for-profit thing, right? I, I think Farcaster has a little dual purpose in the sense that I, you know, if for whatever reason we didn't make as much money, but we ended up with a billion people using it, I, I think I'd be pretty proud of that. But fine, that's the scoreboard. It's like, did you actually hit a massive number of people using it in a retained manner? But I think like, I have so much respect for someone like Elon Musk because like I, like, I just think of like how difficult it is to show up every day and, you know, just keep grinding when things are not going well. And to think he's doing that like with like three companies and like, you know, he'd already had a ton of money. Like there's so many things about him that I think once you're a little closer to, to that, um, is he childish and does he create a bunch of antics? Yes. But like, God, like that is a crazy human. Like to, to, to go do that, like that requires like just some next level shit. And so I think um, in history, I think the reason people tend to focus on the people is like that. That's the reason like you, you do actually have those people in history that really pull things forward. Um, and then, yeah, I think that the other one with with history, and this is a little bit more on the communism side, is just like there's this desire in uh, humanity is to just solve all the problems, right? Like, the, you know, especially in, the, in like the West and educated circles, it's like we, we can truly live in a utopia. And I just don't think that, that that's true. Like, can we improve the world? Yes. Like, I actually think the single best, biggest way we can improve the world is through technology. Um, I'm pretty much in the Mark Andreessen camp of like, you know, uh, you know techno dynamism and uh, optimism. But like, uh, when, when people think that they can kind of just like go and then reshuffle everything, and somehow they can think better than the market. I think it's a really, really dangerous thing. And and it's like the same pattern over and over, right? And and are there injustices in the world? Sure. But I think that, you know, I think any one individual who thinks that they, they're kind of like um, omniscient in the way that they can just solve it all, like it doesn't work. And so that's actually, I think, the tension, right? Because if you get like these great people of history and it can be in politics and in, in science and in, in, you know, social justice, whatever, whatever person you want to pick, um, when they do have absolute power, it, it definitely has a corrupting effect and, and it turns out humans are pretty fallible. So I think, I think that balance is, is something that I'm much more conscious of and something I'd love to learn more about. Like some point when I'm not like grinding every day on a, on a company, I'd like to, you know, basically spend eight hours a day reading books. Yeah, that's really well said. I think maybe a good book that ties that stuff together is Skin in the Game by Taleb about, um, you know, facing the consequences of the risks that you take and uh, that kind of goes along with being top down and, and ruling in the communism fashion. But anyways, that's not the podcast uh, that, that we run. But uh, the podcast we do run, and I like asking the stole founders, is obviously a lot of founders watch this and crypto has a shortage of products. And that's really the bottleneck in my view. And so you've obviously built um, arguably the most successful uh, product so far in crypto. 
Um, and- well, I, I would say Coinbase, OpenSea. There are there are a few that have. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess um, I'm at- new wave consumer crypto. How about that? Yeah. Okay. There we go. Um, okay. So uh, given that uh, you've been on this journey, what is the uh, what what's some advice you would give to aspiring founders or current founders in crypto about like what is the biggest lesson you've learned? What would you advise people? Um, take away. Yeah, so I mean, this is very much from my co-founder Varun, who I, I get tend to get a little bit more distracted. I like you know whatever shiny object. Uh, be relentlessly focused, um, and that's obviously very trite and like easy to say. But the simplest thing that Varun will say is like, "Can we ship this by Friday?" And it's become a little bit of a meme within the company of things that, in theory, you can let slip, slip two, three weeks, and you maybe make it a little bit more polished and better. But it's just like starting on Monday. Can you get it out by Friday? And 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 just like stringing week after week after week of of just shipping, um, and and this is actually something from Brian is like action produces information. Brian Armstrong, and and like I think when we were making the least amount of progress is actually when we were kind of galaxy branding ourselves and and overthinking things and and kind of scoping things to be much bigger. And I think where we've had the most success is like just moving as fast as possible. You have to be incredibly. You have to be smart because obviously you can lose money, especially if you're doing things on chain. But like I think. I, I look at, you know, a lot of crypto companies and I'm like, why aren't you flooding the zone? Like I should be following you on, you know, Twitter, hopefully forecaster now. And you should be up. I, I should see like a product update like every other day. Like you don't even have a big team and users. So like you should just be moving like it's, it, you know. And so that I think is is one thing. And then I think that the other thing that if you're building a consumer and you don't have a mobile app and you think you've Galaxy Brain like figured it out and your app is going to be so good, people are going to use it on a web not gonna make it like build on mobile and and obviously i think like if you're building the solana ecosystem like you have an increasing number of people using the the solana phone right so it's like you should be on the forefront of trying to figure out how to like take advantage of all of the 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 native apis that are like way more crypto friendly but like mobile is the only 88 percent of twitter uses on mobile 85 percent of podcaster users on mobile i think instagram is like 90 or 95 percent because they basically don't have a website like because you sit on a computer all day doesn't it's actually not where your users are and so and and we galaxy brand ourselves on this because Vernon and i didn't have mobile experience and so when we were building the initial app we built a desktop client electron um i remember and it was just like yeah. what are you doing guys like <laughs> just build a mobile app like you know you know the midwit meme uh like you yeah. got the guy and then the jedi and then the midwit in the middle every reason you have for not building a mobile app is that guy and then just build a mobile app as either side, right? Because because the people who are successful, they're the Jedi's. They built mobile apps, and then your users, whether they are Jedi's or not, so like they want a mobile app too. And so, build mobile app. Those are my two pieces of advice. Awesome, Dan. I was just gonna add. I think if you were a maxi of a protocol, it would have to be Solana because everything you're saying about like shipping velocity and also a focus on product is what me and Mert talk about every day. So welcome to the club. <laughs> Well, like I said, I think I have nothing but respect. And that's actually the the thing as as like coming from a place of I think if you put me more in a maximal camp of anything, it's probably from Ethereum, is the thing I deeply respect about Solana is the the shipping velocity and the willing to ignore the haters, the downtime people, like basically anyone who's built anything of significance would never critique like that. They would look at that and go, the rate of change here is really high. And so that is the thing like it, it, that's my least favorite part about crypto is there are so many midwits who somehow got audiences for whatever reason 
and they're like a crypto influencer. And it's like they keep making money because like there's just so much money sloshing around in crypto. And it's just like, gosh, like who cares? Like what have you built? Like if the only thing you've ever built is a Twitter audience and it's basically because you, you got it in during a bull run, like mute, see ya. Like I don't want to see any of your opinions. <laughs> like, you know, like we're, we're building the future. Like, you know, the people in the, the, whether they're in Ethereum or Solana or hell, like people in ordinals, that's building the future. That's not, that's not, uh, you know, laser eye maxi, like, just just focus on the people doing shit like <laughs> like don't don't focus on the people who have opinions yeah that's um i actually added a slack reminder to our company uh what did you get done this week from uh, the elon thing on fridays it's actually quite effective <laughs> yeah i mean if you're an entrepreneur and you you want something to inspire you go do the elon biography if you don't like reading books listen to an audible it's actually not bad listen to it maybe you're like going on a walk or something but just get to the sections where he's like doing tesla and he's going through like, you know, production hell and his level of just like, who made this requirement? I want to talk to them right now. If they can't give me an answer, they're fired or we're removing the requirement. You should remove all requirements and you should be adding 10% back. Like that is how you build like the world's biggest electric car company and a rocket company that like is 80% of payload to space and can land things back. Like you, you, you're not going to build anything significant if you're just sitting there like, you know, shit post maximalism and like, it's like, no, just like keep making progress. Like fine to have fun. Right. But I, but I think like that would be the one thing. It's just like, I think people, they get, Elizabeth Warren is the competitor, right? Jamie Dimon is the competitor. It's not, it's not the other crypto chain. That's, uh, you know, this is the market cap here is so small. Well, what a podcast, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to put a link uh, for my signup code to Farcaster <laughs> in the show notes and description. Honestly, if you're in crypto and you're not on Farcaster and you're only using Twitter, what are you doing? You owe it to the community to get on Farcaster. All right, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. Yep, we'll see you next time. All right, I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. You get 10% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed10 when you sign up. All right, I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. Lightspeed.